Hello, everyone, and thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Susie Gelman, and I'm privileged to serve as the board chair of Israel Policy Forum. If you're joining Israel Policy Forum for the first time today, I want to welcome you. And if you are a returning viewer, I want to welcome you back. As we reflect on the impact of the past four years on our vision of a Jewish, democratic, and secure Israel, as we looked ahead to what the next four years may bring, we're seeking to frame our work with a set of policy recommendations for the Biden administration and members of Congress. This package of proposals aims to achieve a realistic reset in U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, strengthening the U.S.-Israel relationship and Israeli security, rebuilding U.S.-Palestinian ties, expanding Israel's regional integration, and preserving a political horizon for a two-state solution. The Real Realistic Reset Project will define the work of Israel Policy Forum in the months ahead with special podcasts, articles, and other digital resources, and will inform our work on Capitol Hill. We're excited to present some of our recommendations to you in today's webinar. Before we be begin, let me say to all of our supporters on today's call, thank you. Your generosity has been critical in bringing us to this point. For those who have not yet done so, I encourage you to make a contribution to Israel Policy Forum. Last year, Israel Policy Forum was able to reach tens of thousands of policymakers, community leaders, journalists, and interested individuals like you. Because of donor support, our realistic reset will provide a path forward to realize the vision of a Jewish, democratic, and secure Israel. Please help support this vital resource and visit israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving and make your gift today. Thank you. Now on to today's program. As I mentioned, one of the pillars of our realistic reset model is expanding Israel's regional integration. That means understanding the current political context. And central to this is the interplay between the United States, Israel, the Arab states, and Iran. To help us break down the current state of affairs, we're fortunate to be joined by Elon Goldenberg. Elon is director and senior fellow at the Middle East Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. He is also a policy advisor here at Israel Policy Forum. With that, Elon, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here, Susie. Wonderful. So my first question is this. During the 2020 presidential campaign, Joe Biden and his advisors indicated that he would seek to re-enter the Iran nuclear agreement after the election. But the Biden administration has not rushed to rejoin the deal, and there have even reportedly been discussions within the White House as to whether to return to the original agreement or seek new terms. Could you please explain what you think is going on here? Sure. Um, and yeah, thank you, Susie, for having me. And it's great to be with uh, you and Israel Policy Forum and what a wonderful organization that I just love being affiliated with um, and all of our work together. Um, and so, yeah, there's we're a month in and... You know, I think some people might have expected sort of a snap of the fingers for, for the U.S. to go rushing back into the nuclear agreement. Uh, but I don't think I've seen anything unusual. On the one hand, you have a lot of uh, deal supporters who are incredibly getting increasingly anxious at what they see as a slow start. Meanwhile, you already have you know the critics of the agreement criticizing the Biden administrations for, for things it has or hasn't done yet. Well, the reality is I think most of this can just be explained as the normal business of starting up a new administration. So first to remember... You know, Iran was is an important issue, but you know we had a we have a global pandemic and a massive economic situation and other key issues that the administration is dealing with, and so that was the focus of the transition more than Iran. And so you know they're still trying to staff up a government that's barely even you know up and running uh, and has been through four years of just you know a lot of abuse and frankly a lot of empty seats, more empty seats than you'd usually expect to see coming in with a new administration. So I think a lot of that um, explains what some people view as a slow start, um, but I don't really. I just see it as sort of normal growing pains, and everyone I talk to who's in government is frankly underwater and doing everything they can, um, while also just getting adjusted to the new reality of like getting your new healthcare plan and getting your computer up and running and all the things that happen with new jobs. Um, in fact, by 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 most administration standards, the fact that they put a thousand people into new seats on January twentieth is, is is a modern day record. So, you know, they're doing their best. Um, I do think, look, I, I don't sense that they've changed their approach in terms of there's still, I think the preference still looks to be like a, a mutual return to the JCPOA. 
But I think a normal healthy pro- policy process is um, kind of relook some of your basic assumptions, even if that's what President Biden has been promising for two years and promised as a candidate. And so having a session where you really talk through, uh, as at least some of the news reporting has said, do we want to do this? How do we want to do this? Taking the time to get that right. Like that was always going to happen. Uh, and that's kind of what's happened in the first uh, month. Um, I mean, I do think the one thing that I'll say might have, maybe has changed a little bit is I do think there's, they still want to go back in. I do think there was some who assumed, I assumed, and I still kind of believe that, you know, there's a pretty narrow window for doing this before the Iranian elections in June. Um, and I think the administration's attitude thus far has been, we can't really do this on the Iranian timeline. We're going to do it on our own timeline. It'd be great if we get something done before June. I personally think it's a lot easier to get done before June because you know the people you're working with before you have any turnover in leadership. But at the end of the day, I mean, the way the Iranian system works, it's, you know, you have the supreme leader and he's in charge. Um, he listens to everybody around him and all the different sort of players. And the president, in this case, is Hassan Rouhani and his foreign minister, Javad Zarif, they are very important. They're only around for a few more months. They're pretty pragmatic. Um, they're the ones who negotiated the initial deal with the Obama administration. Um, but, you know, even if they're gone, it's still the Supreme Leader who's a decision maker. Um, it becomes more complicated if you have a different team there in place. So I'd like to see things move before June. I, th- I hope that they do. Um, but that might be the one change. But other than that, I, I think all this can just be explained by it's going to start moving eventually. In recent days, we've seen the first signs of movement towards re-engagement. The IAEA Director General visited Tehran and has come to an agreement with Iran to partially mitigate Iranian threats to reduce access to inspectors. And the U.S. has made some declarations at the U.N. about snapback sanctions. Can you explain what has happened? Sure. Um, Well, I think what we've had is a few different things in the last few days, almost like the first signs of diplomatic movement. And so the first was a a wholly symbolic one, the American uh, decision to to say that we don't believe snapback at the UN Security Council is still in effect. Um, It doesn't really matter because it doesn't actually change the sanctions. And the reason the sanctions are being implemented has less to do with UN Security Council sanctions and more to do with the fact that the US has its own sanctions on on all these Iranian entities and no country in the world is willing to do business with Iran and no company in the world because of the fear uh, that that they will lose the American market. So even if the UN security, even if according to the United States, you know, the UN Security Council no longer sees like all these sanctions is in place, uh, doesn't really matter. But it is symbolic as just a first step towards going back into the nuclear agreement. That doesn't actually change. I don't think anything material outside of that. Um, you know, the IEA visit was very important. Um, because Iran had been threatening to basically stop cooperation on some very important elements of the inspections regime, which is the most important part, not just of the nuclear agreement, but even just general, like how you monitor a nuclear program. And um, there was legislation put in place in Iran a couple months ago after its chief nuclear scientist was killed mysteriously. Most people believe it was, you know, done by Israel. Um, that basically put this February 23rd deadline in place for if we don't have progress or sanctions relief, we're going to start stop cooperating. And what happened was basically a face-saving deal between Iran and the IAEA, where the IAEA still has strong assurances that at least for the next few months, it's going to be able to keep an eye on the program, maybe not as close of an eye as it was keeping before. Um, but in exchange for that, the Iranians can say we're still abiding by this legislation we passed without doing things that would kill diplomacy. So, uh, and finally, I think maybe two other things that are important in this space. One is, you know, the U.S. has now indicated it would join a meeting with the other members of the P5 plus one, um, you know, and Iran, maybe it would call it the P4 plus one, plus the U.S. is a guest because it's not in the agreement. People are describing it in different ways. I think the U.S. would just consider it the P5 plus one. Um, and so the ball is now in Iran's court on that. They say they are considering it, but I expect that eventually we'll get to a meeting somewhere in Europe, maybe in Brussels or something like that, um, which would be a really strong first indicator of actually starting to re-engage. Um, and finally, the last piece here, and I think is also important to mention, I'm going to a little bit of deep detail on sort of just the diplomatic developments in the last few days, um, is uh, there is this report that 
you know, there's a, a few billion dollars of Iranian money that's sitting in South Korea um, that might get transferred. This is, again, all this stuff gets very complicated with these sanctions. But the basic idea is there's a mechanism that was put in place by the Trump administration that allows money to go into the Swiss bank account. It can then be used by Iran for very limited things, essentially humanitarian goods like COVID vaccines and medical supplies. Um, so the money goes into this account that's in use for those things and those things go to Iran. And so there might be a deal between South Korea and Iran, which the US would kind of have to bless for a few billion dollars of Iranian money to go into the Swiss bank account, never go back to Iran, but just be converted into you know, humanitarian goods and then sent back to Iran, which would be kind of an early sign from the US of a willingness to do humanitarian transactions as a sign of goodwill. The Trump administration set this thing up but they never used it, right? Um, so to actually use it would make would make a difference. Um, so, but we'll see if that actually is real or not. It's not clear yet. Let me ask you a follow-up because you mentioned P5 plus one. Uh, speaking last week to world leaders at the Munich Security Conference, President Biden said he's willing to work with the other P5 plus one countries. That would be the UK, France, Germany, Russia, and China on re-entry into the deal, and that he also wanted to work with US allies in Europe to address Iran's disruptive non-nuclear activities in the Middle East. What does President Biden mean when he says this and talks about making the nuclear agreement, quote, long and strong, stronger, or longer and stronger? What do the other P5 plus one states make of this, and where do they stand? Sure, so I think what the Biden administration has said is, you know, First, we want to go back into the nuclear agreement, um, and then we want to build on it, right? Make it longer and stronger. Um, and I think longer means, right, there's some sunset provisions that are associated with the nuclear agreement, certain things that expire after a few years. And the idea is to kind of stretch those out. Um, and you'd have to give the Iranians something in exchange for stretching those out. So in exchange for Iran keeping certain limitations on its nuclear program for another five or 10 or 15 or 20 years, maybe they get more sanctions relief or something like that. Um, stronger, I think, really refers to the region, right? So it's Iran's support for, you know, the Houthis in Yemen and Hezbollah in Lebanon and Iraqi Shia militias, you know, uh, that target the U.S. and all kinds of other things like that, as well as like its missile program. Um, here, I think what you need is probably, and what I think most envision is, don't try to work that out through the P5 plus one. Don't because there's a lot of regional players that need to be part of that equation, including Israel, including the Gulf states, including others. You would, and it's also not going to be like one big deal that addresses all these issues. But instead, what you would do is start a separate diplomatic process to kind of start de-escalating tensions or looking for areas where you can, you know, sort of push back. And you couple that sort of diplomatic process with Iran, along with trying to use, for example, you know, all the normalization agreements and the Abraham Accords to actually get stronger U.S.-Israel cooperation on all these issues, or not, uh, not at U.S.-Israel, Israel-Gulf Arab cooperation, you know, on all these issues as well to counter. So, you know, you need to have both a nuclear strategy and a non-nuclear strategy. Um, and I do think most of the P5 plus one, Susie, to your question about, you know, I think five or six years ago, um, when they were negotiating the JCPOA, Everybody sort of looked at these issues as, at least the Europeans did a secondary, as did the US, right? I mean, they mattered, but the nuclear issue is the most important. Um, I think the nuclear issue is still the most important, but I think there's a recognition that unless you start to address some of these other issues, like no nuclear agreement is sustainable, and these other issues need to matter more and need to be a bigger part of the equation. One of the biggest critiques of the Biden administration's position that it will return to the JCPOA is that this will reduce leverage over Iran to negotiate a new agreement. How do you respond to that? Sure. Yeah, this is the biggest objection to the Biden administration's approach. Um, and like my take is, is I think, a fewfold. Uh, one, you do need to have leverage in a negotiation. Absolutely. We also need to have somebody on the other side who's willing to talk to you at all, right? Like you need to have some leverage and it needs to be, it's not even trust, but just the willingness to talk. And the fact is we were in this agreement, we unilaterally withdrew altogether. Um, and it's just hard to get to a world where you can have a serious negotiation with the Iranians if you don't at least start to live by the commitments you made to them originally, if you want to have any future dialogue. And so I think that's part of it. Another part is I still think the U.S. has plenty of leverage um, in a number of different ways. Um, first is, 
look, you can renegotiate and go back into the nuclear agreement, but you could also look the Iranians in the eye and say like, hey, look, you know, we can unilaterally remove these sanctions today and we can start having a dialogue. We can also put them back on tomorrow. And you know it and we know it because we've proven it over the last few years. And so if you want this to last, like we need to talk about some of these other issues. And by the way, like if you think we're just going to sit here and like the sunset provisions are going to run out and you're going to start moving to a nuclear weapon, like there's no political reality in the United States where the U.S. Congress just sits around and like lets all that happen. Like the sanctions will come back. So, yes, we are going back into the deal, but like you have to understand that if no progress is made, like this isn't going to be sustainable. And that's, I think, a big point of leverage. And you also have another point of leverage, which is sort of your positive inducements. Like the JCPOA didn't remove all sanctions. The JCPOA removed one very narrow set of sanctions, but there's still a lot of sanctions on Iran and a lot of things it can't do, even if it has a JCPOA in place and that it wants. And so part of any future agreement and expansion and and discussions in the region needs to also involve a willingness to give the Iranians more if they take more steps that we want them to take. So kind of all that together, I think sort of is, is how I respond to this, I think very important question on leverage. Biden administration has said that it will consult with Israel and America's Arab state partners in the Middle East about re-entering the Iran deal. What would such consultations look like and have they been taking place already? So I think they've started, right? You've already had multiple calls between Tony Blinken uh, and Gabi Ashkenazi. You've had, um, I I believe, multiple calls between National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and Israeli National Security Advisor uh, Meir Ben Shabbat, who's been uh, sort of put in place by Prime Minister Netanyahu as the point man for the Iran talks, um, you know, and so I expect a lot of this to be kind of NSC to NSC. Um, and you've also had a call, you know, after a little while between uh, President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu last week, um, you know, after much fanfare. Um, and so um, I think it's just beginning, but I do think there's there's a good way to do this and a bad way to do this. I hope we go the good way. There's not going to be agreement between you know, if the Biden administration chooses to go back into the nuclear agreement, uh, Israel will object and, and Israel will oppose that. And, and Prime Minister Netanyahu has said that pretty clearly. Um, but although there is, I would say, disagreements within the security establishment, as we saw, for example, with this letter from some of the members of Commanders for Israel Security just yesterday, I believe it was, um, you know, in support and different parts of the security establishment that are more supportive of going back in. But where I think there is near unanimity is like what we want here is even if we're not totally aligned, the U.S. and Israel aren't totally in agreement on everything all the time. But let's take it behind closed doors and work in a professional dialogue to see where we can coordinate our positions and work together on the things we we can agree on. Um, and I know this; I've seen it firsthand. You know, I was part of the team that worked on Iran at the Pentagon from 2009 to 2012 before the JCPOA, and we had incredibly close ties and exchanges with the Israelis, and it worked really well. Um, and um, you know, it was basically run out of the White House and out of the Israeli NSC. And it all kind of broke down as, as the U.S. got engaged with Iran, especially like Israeli feelings about sort of the, the secret channel with the Omanis, which you don't need to do any secret channel this time. Um, I think everybody knows the U.S. has telegraphed what it wants to do. Uh, you know, President Biden's written about it in CNN. So I don't think we're going to have like these secret, secret talks, um, you know. And so um, what I hope we can do is kind of get to that that sort of healthy, constructive dialogue. And, and I'm pretty optimistic, Susie. I was, I was pretty worried about a month ago. I thought this was going to be kind of ugly and just a repeat of 2015 with public barrages, but it hasn't been that way at all. I mean, I think the Israeli, you know, I think Prime Minister Netanyahu has pulled back. He's been quite quiet. He's been judicious. All of his people have been judicious. In the campaign, there's been general like push towards in this direction. And the Biden administration doesn't want like a big early disagreement with Israel either. So I'm hopeful that we can find a way to sort of like work together on this. Despite what you just said, Elon, um, you know, at a recent conference hosted by Israel's Institute for National Security Studies, IDF Chief of Staff Aviv Kochavi stated rather explicitly that the United States should not re-enter the JCPOA. So what's your read about where the debate stands in Israel right now? Yeah. So but the interesting thing was like how widely like panned that speech was by sort of the Demo- by, by the rest of the Israeli security establishment, the politicians. Um, I mean, frankly, I think up until January 20th, like that was the Israeli position and they were kind of just echoing the Trump administration position. 
Um, but then after January 20th, as I said, things have become much more cautious and they're waiting to see where the, the new Biden team comes and they don't want an early fight. And it seems to me like perhaps the, you know, the IDF chief of staff didn't, didn't get that memo or sort of that change in position and put that speech out right afterwards. But it was broadly like panned and you haven't seen that kind of language since. So, you know, I do think we're moving in this, in this new direction. I mean, look, at the end of the day, we might still end up there. Like there might still be just disagreements might be still be too broad. There's all kinds of political pressure in Israel. We've obviously got an election in a month and a half. So like this could become a big, unpleasant public food fight. I sure hope not. I don't think that's good for the U.S. or for Israel. And I don't, it doesn't look like that's what anybody wants right now. Um, but, you know, but right now things have also moved pretty slowly on the U.S., you know, Iran side, as I described, they're just starting. So if things start heating up, <coughs> And negotiations get serious with the Iranians. I mean, I think that will then test sort of like how much space the U.S. and Israel are willing to give each other on this stuff. And we all remember what the summer of 2015 was like and, frankly, how this issue uh, really polarized the Jewish community on one side or the other. Uh, so I hope you're right that we don't go down that path again. Uh, yeah, because it, was, you, it wasn't productive at the in the at the end of the day by any right. stretch. Susie, and I do think one positive is like we have a different speaker of the house now. Her name is Nancy Pelosi, and I can't see her inviting uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu to give a speech to contradict President Biden's uh, you know policy in Iran. So. <laughs> Fair point, and thanks for reminding us of that. Um, while the UAE has stressed that its normalization with Israel last year was not the formation of an anti-Iran coalition. It's clear that there is a confluence of interest between Israel and the Gulf Arab states when it comes to a threat from Iran. How could develop, developments between the U.S. and Iran impact Israel-Arab state relations? Yeah, so I mean, I think they already have. I think it's one of the motivations that we've had for this sort of coming together. Um, and I kind of think that there's an opportunity here going forward, right? Um, I mean, look, I think on the one hand, there's an opportunity for, for the Gulf states and Israel to work more closely together on countering Iran in ways that are constructive. So the, the, big, the best example of this that I have is, you know, the Saudis are stuck in this war on Yemen. Part of the reason they're stuck in this war on Yemen is because in Yemen is because Iranians and or their proxies are flying over, you know, sort of drones and, you know, various rockets and missiles, um, they're being supplied by Iran and targeting Iranian city or Saudi cities and population centers. Um, well, Israel's had some of the same challenges over the last few years, both from, you know, especially from Hezbollah and to a lesser degree, but also from Hamas. Um, and Israel's developed very good countermeasures for those. Um, I mean, Iron Dome is the one everybody talks about, but it's a whole system of other things as well. Um, and perhaps there's some ways to find cooperation between Israel and Saudi Arabia on lessons learned on how to counter these things. Because one of the Israeli experiences has been, if you're able to defend yourself and the population doesn't feel like it's under siege, you can be much more restrained in your response, whether it's in Gaza or in Lebanon. One of the reasons we haven't had you know, a war in Lebanon in 15 years, a war in Gaza since 2014, is because Israel has gotten so good at like stopping all the attacks that are coming in. So like that's like one example of an area where you can see cooperation between um, Israel and the Gulf states, obviously, and the economy and other things as well. Um, but, um, you know, I, there's also an opportunity diplomatically, because I think a lot of the Gulf states, and you said this, you know, the UAE has talked about how it doesn't, it doesn't see this as an alliance against Iran. That's because the UAE also wants to talk to Iran and de-escalate tensions in the Gulf. And Saudi Arabia may be a little less so, but I think all the Gulf states are interested in some kind of dialogue with Iran to sort of lower the temperature. And so if you have both an Israel, it's hard to get to an Israel-Iran dialogue. That seems pretty far off right now. But if you have a Arab-Israel dialogue going and an Iran-Israel Arab dialogue going on different ways to just sort of lower the temperature in the region, like you can find ways to communicate and put those two things together, hopefully in ways that are constructive. Because one of the things, one of the biggest challenges in the Middle East overall, like if you pull back is, like there are no multilateral vehicles or really effective multilateral vehicles in the Middle East. Like there are in places like Asia and Europe. And it's one of the reasons I think it's a, it's just a region that's faced a lot more conflict. So if you can try to build some of these things slowly, but surely um, you can make some progress at least in, in lowering the temperature in the region. 
Israel is going to elections one month from today. Uh, yesterday, Gidon Saar, who, as you know, is challenging Netanyahu for the leadership of of the country. I mean, he formed, he left Likud, formed his own new party, uh, New Hope. And he said yesterday in a webinar that was hosted by a local think tank, um, when asked about what Israel could do vis-a-vis, vis-a-vis Iran, he actually cited the attack on the Osirak nuclear reactor in 1981 and talked about the fact that at the time, that was certainly not popular with the United States, but in retrospect, it was a move that was, I guess, more more applauded than not. So, using that analogy, and we can't. There's no point in speculating about where elections uh, are headed and and who will emerge on top, if anyone. But when you hear that kind of language coming out of uh, people who want to uh, be prime minister, how does that make? What's your reaction? Sure. I mean, look, um, the military option is always an option that's on the table. I mean, I think the U.S. and Israel are both capable if they if they needed to pursue that option. Um, but, you know, I just think we're a long way off from that. You know, I think there's a lot of, you know, debate about whether Osirak, for example, actually ended up, you know, did Osirak, like, at least the history is, did Osirak stop Saddam from getting a weapon or did Osirak take Saddam to then take that nuclear program, build it up much more secretively underground. And then when we went in, in, you know, in the early nineties, we were shocked at what we found and how far along the program had gotten and would they have done that if Osirak hadn't happened. So I think there's still some serious debate on, you know, whether or not like that actually worked. Um, You know, the, 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 um, the case of, you know, Syria actually in 2007 is a more interesting one uh, where Israel took out the Syrian nuclear reactor in the desert. And that was, you know, in cooperation with the U.S. and coordination with the U.S. Uh, and frankly, part of the reason that was a lot easier to do is because it was entirely secret. The, the nuclear facility was entirely secret. So the Syrians were caught with some very incriminating, very embarrassing things, which means they just were happy to keep it secret. Now, Iran, it's different. Like there, it's a much bigger, more dug in nuclear program, much further away from Israel um, that they've been public about for 20 years and is a source of national pride. So the idea that you can just hit the nuclear program and expect no response from Iran, I think is it's just not the same situation. And I actually think they do have the capacity to then really go much more aggressively underground and actually go for a nuclear weapon if you do this. Mm-hmm. Thus far, they've sort of hedged and chosen not to. So I think a lot of reasons to not go down this pathway um, unless you have to. Um, but yeah, look, we've been there before. Like I said, my ex- one of my experiences in government was er- like doing Iran at the Pentagon from 2009 to 2012. And during that time, like this talk from Israel was very, very common. And I think there was a prevalent view basically across the world that this was that an Israeli strike was, was, was quite possible or even likely um, it didn't come to pass. Um, so, you know, if, if Iran's nuclear program keeps going in that direction, we might get we might get back there. I would only point out that, you know, under the JCPOA, Iran's nuclear program was a lot more contained and a lot further away from a nuclear weapon. It had, you know, they had 300 kilograms of LEU. You need like, you know, that's like one fourth of what you need even for one nuclear weapon. Now they have, you know, enough, you know, kilograms of LEU for a couple of nuclear weapons and growing. So like, you tell me which, which approaches work better. So I guess what you're saying with regard to Israel's don't poke the bear. And of course, there's also the rhetoric that's used in the campaign, right? So we'll we'll see how that plays out. Uh, President Biden has been very critical of Saudi Arabia's human rights record and the civilian toll inflicted by Riyadh's military campaign in Yemen. The other day, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said the U.S. was looking to recalibrate its relations with the kingdom. How might deteriorating ties between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia impact Saudi Arabia's disposition toward Israel and Iran? Yeah, so so look, I do think, um, for one thing, I'm not, we had kind of under Trump four years of essentially green lights for everything for Saudi Arabia, for Israel too. And so to some extent, what the Biden administration is doing is just sort of going back to normal operating procedure of how we deal with these countries. Um, and so... You know, but with Saudi, I think they are going further. 
Um, I do think that their view is that, you know, you've seen a number of reckless actions by Saudi Arabia in recent years, whether it's in problematic actions that are against U.S. interests, whether it's, you know, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi or, you know, the war in Yemen or like, you know, the the Gulf split with Qatar, like some of these different things, or um, even like the, the attempted kidnapping of the Lebanese prime minister. Um, and so I think the view in D.C. is, you know, we're not going to walk away from Saudi Arabia. And if Saudi Arabia sort of demonstrates a new seriousness and kind of sort of checks some of these bad habits and problematic behaviors that are against our interest, like there will be a relationship there. Um, but if it doesn't and it continues on the, on the current track, um, then, you know, like then the U.S. is really going to step back. Um, and it already has pulled back from, you know, supporting at least offensive capabilities in, in Yemen. Um, but I, I think the earlier turns are, you know, Saudis have found a way to patch up with the countries. They are, I think, um, you know, making some, like, I think they're trying to figure out how to be sort of a, a partner of the U.S. and stay in good graces in Washington, which means if they can come engage more with the Israelis in a positive way, like, and they see that as a winner in Washington, that could actually cause like greater Saudi-Israeli rapprochement. I mean, that was one of the reasons behind the Abraham Accords was not just the benefit of the relationship with, you know, Israel, but also the the, the increased standing in Washington. You know, for, for the UAE, it was a major piece of, initial, you know, sort of motivator. Um, it For the Emiratis, there was partially like giving Trump a diplomatic win, but it also, by taking annexation off the table, at least temporarily, was a big win for Democrats and for an incoming Biden administration that really did not want to see annexation. Um, you know, and obviously Israel Policy Forum played a big role in that um, and long advocated for that. So, you know, that was not just about the UAE and Israel. It was also about Washington. And in the same way, I think there's a moment here where if the Saudis want to sort of stay in Washington's good graces or maintain the campaign, relationship, one of the things they could be do is be more constructive in their relationship with Israel. So uh, I've got a couple more questions and then I'll turn to audience questions. We have several, but as a reminder, if you would like to ask a question, please type it in the Q&A box and I'll get to as many as I can in the time we have remaining. Uh, Ilan, a few weeks ago, we spoke with your CNAS colleagues, Elise Catalano-Ewers and Kaylee Thomas, about the UAE arms deal struck alongside the Abraham Accords which was frozen for review by the Biden administration. There's also been pressure from some Democratic senators for Biden to revoke his predecessor's recognition of Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara, which was deployed to Sweden an Israel-Morocco deal. What do these developments tell us about the Biden administration's attitude toward Israel-Arab state normalization? Sure. So look, I think the Biden administration has been very supportive of you know, normalization agreements. Um, and um, wants to use it to take to take advantage of of the normalization agreements of, of the last few months um, and keep moving them in a positive direction. But I do think there is a difference between sub being supportive and feeling like you have to. It's the U.S. who needs to pay. It's the U.S. who needs to be the one who sweetens the pot and makes this deal happen by by you know sort of putting its interests on the table. Um, and um, on the question of the F-35s, that, that's, that's a broader regional question about the military balance of power. And do you really want these advanced fighters like being sold into a, a region that's already like, you know, in such a difficult position? And one where like you question, like most of the challenges posed by Iran and other regional players, it's, it's not at the like high end, you need F-35s. You can be able to counter terrorism and deal with proxies. You need good special forces, not like the fifth generation fighters. Um, and when it comes to Morocco, um, you know, um, there's also this concern about this sort of, you know, basic U.S. principle that's existed since 1945, an international principle of not recognizing acquisition of territory by force that the Trump administration just kind of blew through in the case of Morocco, also in the case of the Golan. Um, so I don't necessarily I don't know what the Biden administration is going to do. Like, I think they will be a while and they'll consider it. I don't know if the F-35 sale go through. I don't know if they'll reverse the Morocco stuff. I don't think they will. If I were to bet, I'd probably guess the F-35 still eventually goes through. I don't know. Um, you know, but, um, you know, I think a lot of it is kind of the views like, yeah, we want to continue to support this, but, you know, we don't have to be the one entirely underwriting it and like sacrificing our own interests to make this happen. Even if it is in our interest, we have other interests too. 
One more question for me, and then I'll turn to the audience. Uh, you've been involved in, in some pretty high-level negotiations over the years related to Middle East peace. What, as a negotiator, what kind of a position will the Biden administration be in, given the fact that President Biden's predecessor pulled out of this deal? And if, you know, it, it's certainly not out of the realm of the possible that a future administration might do the same thing. I mean, how do you how do you negotiate getting back in a deal or getting a better deal when there's no assurance that that the party that's leading the negotiation, in this case, the United States, will stick to it in the future? Yeah, no, that's a really tough question. And I don't think American negotiators have a very good answer for it, right? Because like, it is what it is, um, right? And so I think the answer to the Iranians when you're sitting across the table and that is twofold. One, like, well, like four or eight years from now, we'll have to figure that out. Then is this in your interest today? Then you do it, right? So if it's in if it's in Iran's interest today to get that sanctions relief and that's what it wants, as opposed to sort of continuing to build up its nuclear program, um, they'll have to make that decision and cut that deal knowing there's a risk out there that like, you know, something, a different administration comes along and has a different attitude. Um, you know, the... Um, and so I think that's the big one. But then the other one is also like, look, if we just do the nuclear deal and we make no progress on the region and we make no progress on any of these other issues, then you're almost guaranteeing that when a different administration comes in, like this is all going to be overturned. So you say that to the Iranians, if we really want to make progress, if we really want this to become sustainable, we're going to have to go further and deal more than just getting back to the JCPOA. Like that's just not going to be enough if you actually want this to last. Even if we like, we're fine with that. Like, it's just not going to last given our politics. So we have to figure out how to do more. Okay. To the audience, uh, Eli Nirenberg asks, what can we make out of the Biden administration's decision to stop pushing for a UN embargo and their muted response to attacks on American targets in Baghdad? Is this an attempt to show Iran goodwill or just a shift of priorities? So the UN embargo, I don't really think there was a shift on the, I mean, there was, right? There was a shift on whether or not the US believes snapback has been invoked, but the embargo is like off, right? I mean, at least the arms embargo at the UN and there's ways to mitigate it, mostly, you know, through bilateral agreements with like the Russians or the Chinese to not sell certain weapons. Reality is I don't think the Iranians have the money to buy the kinds of weapons or, that, that are under this embargo, or even if they did, they're so far below American capabilities if the Iranians were to decide to stop investing in groups like Hezbollah and the Houthis and instead start buying like, you know, tanks, I think that would be good news for the United States, actually, because we're much better at destroying those and dealing with them easily. So um, and on the on the Baghdad thing, um, look, I think under the Trump or really it was Erbil where there was this attack. Um, I think there's also been some attacks in Baghdad. Um, under the Trump administration, there was this instinct to just blame Iran immediately for everything. Now, all indicators are that this was probably like an Iranian-supported militia group who, who launched these um, attacks. But I think the administration is going to take its time to figure out the intelligence and actually, like, before it does anything, which is how it used to be, you know, whereas, you know, Secretary Pompeo would just come out in the first two minutes and say it was all Iran We'll figure out the details later. I think it's just a more professional way of doing things. So if this really was sort of Iranian back, then I suspect it was. I do hope and imagine at some point like the administration will say so once it's got the clear evidence. Harry Reese asks, are there unilateral actions you believe Prime Minister Netanyahu might take that would make it more difficult for the U.S. to re-engage with Iran on the nuclear issue? To what extent do you think Netanyahu will make opposition to a U.S. president a centerpiece of his domestic political positioning. Um, less so because the president's middle name is not Hussein. I don't know. I mean, I was very worried about this, like in the, the combination of, you know, election, Israeli elections and early U.S. actions on Iran that Netanyahu might not agree with and his desire to sort of politicize all this. Um, but at least thus far, I think that's not been his approach. I think he's taking a cautious approach. Maybe it's because he knows Joe Biden better. Maybe it's because of the experience of five years ago. Maybe it's because most. it's also not just him. I mean, it's most of this political opposition is going after him for saying he can't like manage a functional relationship with the U.S. because of disagreements over Iran and somebody else needs to do this 
even if they all oppose the return to the JCPOA. Um, and so, I mean, look, Israel could, you know, things could mysteriously start exploding again inside of Iran, like other stuff that's happened in the past that most people, I mean, have no evidence for, but like just based on historical behaviors, good chance that was the Israel. But, but at least for the moment, that doesn't seem to be what, um, you know, Netanyahu and the Israelis are doing. I think they're being more cautious and it's a good thing. Nachshon, Neil Feldman, while there is so much talk about rejoining JCPOA, this former defense analyst's understanding is that the Israeli national security establishment sees a more likely threat from Iran exporting significantly more accurate short distance missiles to its Hamas and Hezbollah proxies. Such missiles were not mentioned in the nuclear missile, only JCPOA. What's the point of rejoining the latter when the non-nuclear missiles could really be used perhaps in the next year or two? Yeah. So look, the missile issue and the sort of regional lower end missile issues is, is a major concern, um, you know, um, and one that you need to worry about. And Israel has actually gone, you know, pretty aggressively at Iran and Syria in an effort to, you know, knock those out. And we wrote, we wrote a long report about that for CNAS about a year ago. Um, I mean, I think at least according to public information or what the IDF has said. I mean, they've launched over a thousand strikes into Syria to take out, you know, Iranian targets. And so there's things that can be done outside of diplomacy also that push back on those. Um, but how much worse do all those things get if Iran also has a nuclear weapon in the cover of a nuclear capability? They all get worse. So just because Iran has missiles doesn't mean you're not worried about its nuclear program. And I would argue that from a global perspective. And actually, I'd also say from Israel's perspective, the Israelis put the Israeli security officials put the nuclear problem first. You know, their criticism is there's also other issues that maybe the U.S. should pay more attention to. And I do think that that's like, I think, you know, the Biden administration is also going to put the nuclear issue first. But I think there is very much a recognition that, like, it can't just be the nuclear issue. It's got to be, you know, we got to also focus on all these other challenges. Um, but you also run into a problem where, the Iranians have said, we're happy to negotiate on other stuff, but first step, like prove to us that you're serious by actually returning to the JCPOA. So I think it is hard to, for me to see a pathway towards additional negotiations. It doesn't start with some kind of an agreement on either a mutual return to the JCPOA or maybe something that's less than a mutual return. Both sides take some steps that are a little less, but you got to start there to break the ice and actually get a dialogue going. And then you have to move on and start addressing some of these other issues. We have a question from Jeff Daub. I hope I pronounced your name correctly, Jeff. Uh, recently, Kerry and Mally have been accused of violating the Logan Act because they advised Zarif and other Iranian leaders during the Trump tenure. Do you believe Republican opponents might do something similar with Saudi Arabia and the UAE to undermine Biden policy? Where should Israel position itself in such a beltway catfight? Um, so, look, it is completely normal for American officials who are not in government to engage with, like, foreign dignitaries. Like, that just happens. It's always happened from different political parties. Um, you know what I'm saying? And, like, me as a think tanker, I talk to all these people, even though I was in government, now I'm not in government. Like, you know, and so... Um, you know, I think, and there's all kinds of free speech issues associated with that. And the reason that the Logan Act hasn't been sort of used since like the 1790s or ever, like to actually prosecute anybody, right? So like this stuff's going to continue to happen. And I'm not sure it's bad because it also, you know, a lot of these conversations, you know, these leaders can tell things to non-government officials. They can be, sometimes they can be a little more honest. Sometimes these non-government officials can be, don't have to toe the party line and can just explain how they see things in Washington, I think for the most part, you're like pretty careful to not try to undermine sitting U.S. policy and sitting presidents, um, but instead just explain what's going on um, and explain the situation. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think all, a lot of this just goes back to there was this kind of violation of protocol when like in the 2016 transition, like Mike Flynn, who was the incoming you know, Donald Trump's national security advisor, was actively working against sitting in the president's policies by calling foreign officials. Like that was crossing a line. And that's why the Biden administration, both during the during the campaign and during the transition, had an incredibly strict policy on not talking to foreign officials at all, which is very different than how it's traditionally been. And I think it was very uncomfortable to a lot of our closest friends 
who really wanted to be talking to the Biden people, but like couldn't for like six months. Um, and I also think it partially explains why things have been a little slower, um, at least getting out the gate on some of this stuff, like the Iran stuff, is because, you know, like in, in previous years, like you could have had a pretty extensive like E3 US conversations between November and, you know, January on what you might do on Iran. Like, but not this time around. The Biden people were like, no, well, you need to play this 100% by the book um, and not have any kind of like anything that even smells like that to kind of reinforce the the, the principle of, um, you know, one president at a time. That's my recommendation for Israel and any other foreign government to get entangled in all this. Like, just stay away from it as much as possible. There's no benefit at all whatsoever to get entangled in the middle of, of what seems to be like a, a political disagreement in the United States. We have a question from Laura Rosen, who asks about your observation that one change since the administration got in place is maybe on their timeline for attempting to return to the Iran deal that we need to do it on our timeline. Uh, but she goes on, even if the Supreme Leader is ultimately the decision maker, is the Biden administration really so cavalier about how hard it would be to close a return for return deal with a different Iranian negotiating team. Having flown 36 hours each way to Almaty, et cetera, for negotiations that went nowhere when Jalili was Iran negotiator, bad bet. Yeah, look, so um, my take is, I think it'd be much easier with the current team in place. Um, I think a lot of people believe that too. I, I don't think they're, you know, but I also think that the reality is like they're just facing a lot all at once. That's not Iran. And they have to deal with all those challenges too, whether it's China or whether it's COVID, whether it's global warming, whether it's just like building trust with our allies after the last four years. And so, you know, um, I think there's an interest in getting it done, you know, something done more quickly. And that'll be my guess. I'm kind of, I mean, frankly, like on all this, I'm kind of speculating and just reading the tea leaves. Um, but, you know, so, you know, like, you know, my sense is like they're moving towards there. Um, but, you know, I, I just feel like, I just feel like I've heard this. If it doesn't happen before June, it's not the end of the world. There's still an opportunity. There's also still an opportunity in the lame duck period for two more months, you know, because Rouhani and Zarif are still there until, until August. So, um, you know, um, I think people recognize uh, like that, I honestly don't think that people in the administration are of one mind on this. And you're just going to have to wait and see how it goes. Charles Berman asks, to what extent do Iranian internal politics play a role in a potential revised JCPOA? In particular, what effect might the Revolutionary Guard have on developments? Um, well, look, Iranian politics right now are saying no revised JCPOA at all. Like, let's go back into the deal. The deal is the deal. Um, and the Supreme Leader's position has been, once we're back in the deal and we see that it's working, then we can talk about other things. And so I think that's where we kind of are. Um, the IRGC and the role it plays, um, it has its own economic interests, for sure, um, and its own political interests. Um, it's also not monolithic. It's not like the IRGC is this purely hardline organization. It's got a lot of hardliners, but it also has like some sort of more pragmatic voices as well, but like institutional interests matter. So, you know, um, and the IRGC really does play, you know, I mean, it really is Rouhani and Zarif who run the nuclear portfolio um, and the negotiations, but the IRGC is still the one who runs the show in terms of Iran's regional strategy. And so if you're going to have a dialogue and a negotiations eventually on regional issues, you're going to need to either have some of that be given up to sort of the presidency and the foreign ministry, or you're going to have to have the IRGC in some form or another as part of that negotiation, which gets more complicated for sure. Eric Selkov asks, do you think the Biden administration overestimates the Iranian nuclear program and underestimates the damage caused by Iran through its surrogates? Um, no, I, I think that at the end of the day, they see both of these as challenges. Um, the nuclear issue, it's bigger because of the global dimension of it, right? So for Israel as a regional player, what's happening right in front of you can sometimes be the most important. That's also for the Gulf states. But for the United States, you know, a global superpower surrounded by two oceans, it's just a different, you know, Iranian ability to like meddle in the Middle East 
has less profound global consequences than like the broad non-proliferation regime and what like Iran might getting nuclear weapons could mean for a whole bunch of other countries who might be considering it and what that might mean for overall like global norms and things like that. And so this is where I think some of the disagreements come in is like, do you view the world through the lens of the sort of narrower Middle East or do you view the world through a more global lens? And that's been a source of sort of misalignment between the U.S. and Israel, you know, for as long as the U.S.-Israel relationship has existed. Um, and so that leads to different perspectives and you have to have, you have to find ways around it. You know, you find, you, you do it by sharing information, by communicating, by explaining your sides and by finding bridging solutions that work for both sides. Like, and we've got a pretty good history of managing to do that with the Israelis. Jason Berkovich asks, if all nations re-enter JCPOA, what incentive is there for Iran to make any additional agreements on regional destabilization and or human rights violations? Sure. Yeah. Well, I talked about this before. I think there's a number yeah. of different incentives, right? Like one being um, the fact that like, if you don't make any of those deals, the JCPOA won't last. And eventually all those sanctions will come back. The U.S. can reimpose those sanctions unilaterally if it wants to, as it's proven. Um you know, and on top of that, there's also positive incentives because at the end of the day, the JCPOA only removes a fraction of the sanctions that are imposed on Iran. And if it wants more economic benefits, it's going to have to give more in terms of its regional behavior and missiles. We have a question from Robin Santiago who asks, if Iran insists on compensation for their losses under the restrictions imposed by the Trump administration, will that be a deal breaker? Yeah, I don't see the Biden administration providing Iran with quote unquote compensation. Um, you know, and this was a talking point a few months ago from the Iranians. Um, and it especially gets raised when the US talks about all the leverage that it's gotten from the Trump sanctions. Uh, but when the US does sort of puts that quote unquote leverage in its back pocket, the compensation disagree like sort of language also seems to sort of walk away. So I think, you know. Both of these are sort of opening bargaining positions that at the end of the day, if you do a compliance or compliance agreement, like the compensation issue, I think will go away. Martin Andor asks, isn't North Korea a greater threat than Iran? Yeah, I mean, I think they're both challenging in their own ways, but North Korea does actually have nuclear weapons where Iran doesn't. And North Korea's you know, nuclear weapons are, are pretty much capable of hitting the United States at this point or getting pretty close. So Yes, um, you know, in that in that way, it is. Um, uh, but you know, like they're both challenging in their own ways. Um, I will say, when I was at the Pentagon, like whenever the North Koreans like caused some trouble, like that was like when I had some relaxation time because people stopped paying attention to Iran and vice versa. So you know, um, <laughs> there are two. You know, outside of the, you know, I mean, the two biggest. China's the biggest challenge, at least we're talking about countries, then Russia, and then it's kind of like come Iran and North Korea, distant third and fourth. Um, and that, of course, doesn't even include sort of climate change, global pandemics, and all these other huge issues that, that in many ways are more important. Or just There's like no end of threats. I think we can agree. Uh, Leonard, Leonard Schneiderman asks, is stability now possible in a region dominated by unstable authoritarian states and a democratic state unable to elect a governing body? Um, look, I don't think that the objective, I think that the objective in the Middle East should be, for the United States, should be to try to manage and conflicts and de-escalate tensions and reduce as much as possible. Like, like, a, like you know, it's gonna take a long time to, to make the Middle East stable, but there's a couple of things that are happening in the region. One is you do have these populations that are just incredibly dissatisfied um, they don't like authoritarian, relatively weak, you know, sort of non-responsive regimes, a very young population leads to a lot of these protests, leads to instability. And then you also have a lot of states competing with each other, Iran versus Saudi Arabia versus Qatar and Turkey and Israel and, and the U.S. and Russia also play a role in this. And so when something breaks out somewhere, like everybody gets worried that they're going to like lose influence. And so they all dump weapons and money on different sides of it. And they turn these small wars into big wars. Right. So. That's what happened in Syria. It started as a domestic protest and became like an international proxy war. It's also what happened in Libya. Started as an internal conflict, became this big international proxy war. And so, you know, one of the biggest challenges is sort of both creating conditions where these things don't start to collapse, but also trying to find ways to get these states to 
not all fight each other because when they do, it make these situations a lot worse. I think we have time for a couple more. One from Henry Berman. This is a little bit um, off the topic of Iran, but related to what we've been talking about. Do you think Saudi Arabia will join the Abraham Accords anytime soon? Um, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, <clears throat> on the one hand, I think that the, the 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 common wisdom is that you know King Salman still has very strong feelings about the Palestinian issue, and he's not going to do it. Uh, his son, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who's you know running the country on a day to day basis, has a different approach. Um, but as long as the king is around, then I think that like it's it's hard to see. Um, but you know, could you get more cooperation? I think yes, especially in the context of Saudi Arabia trying to ingratiate itself in Washington and seeing a stronger relate positive relationship with Israel is doing that. And already you have like fairly good or decent like security cooperation between Saudi Arabia and Israel, but certainly you can see more. Okay, last question from uh, Bob Larrick. Shouldn't the Russian bear be concerned about a radical Islamic Iranian Persian empire as well as does China want a long-term radical nuclear Islamic radical base versus its expansionism? Don't we all need better working and friendly relations on the ground? So like Russia and China's role in all this, like the Russians and Chinese do want do not want Iran to have a nuclear weapon. That's why they've been generally cooperative as part of the P5 plus one. So on the nuclear issue, they work with us. Um, they have different perspectives on the region. Like they worry a lot. They, they see the U.S. as intervening. They want to, their interest in the Middle East is also to push back against the U.S. And so they, they like working with the, especially the Russians like working with the Iranians to push back on American influence in places like Syria and, you know, um, where they pushed against, you know, to support Assad, um, even as on the nuclear issue, they kind of act as a mediator and try to sort of broker deals. Um, the Chinese attitude is kind of to try to stay out of all the security competition in the region and all the internal fighting, and instead just sort of cut economic deals where they can while letting the U.S. deal with all the security headaches uh, that the region has to offer. Um, but I don't know if that's sustainable in the long term as China becomes a more important player. Like, how can it continue to just cut deals with Iran and then cut deals with Saudi Arabia when those two are sort of at each other's throat? And will China eventually have to choose? Um, I think we'll have to wait and see. So uh, last question, which we, you don't have time to answer, but I'm going to ask it just because I love its optimism. Selwyn Oskowitz asks, why not an Abraham Accord with Iran? Yes, make friends. So, I don't think you have to answer that necessarily, but I just had to throw it out there. Love to get to the point where that could happen. Yeah. And I will say that after you get back to the nuclear deal, you can at least start negotiating on some things in the region between between Iran and its neighbors, maybe even over time between Israel and Iran to at least we don't need Abraham Accords. Maybe we can start with just agreeing to like not do certain things to each other that just make everything worse. And everybody can sort of dial it down a couple notches. Well, that would sure be nice. So unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much, Ilan, for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, once again, I want to thank our supporters who are with us on today's call. Your generosity makes programs like this one possible. And again, if you have not yet done so, please consider making a contribution today at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Once more, I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, Israel Policy Pod, sign up to receive the weekly Coplo column in your email inbox, and visit our website to access recordings of our previous briefings. Stay tuned for an announcement regarding our next video briefing, which will take place next Tuesday, March 2nd at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. Remember, if it's Tuesday, it's an IPF webinar. Thank you, everyone. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks, Elon.